Today we're going to have lecture three on cantos one and two, the dark wood. We've talked about the structure and backgrounds of the Divine Comedy. We talked about the 33 cantos per canticle. We talked about the names of the three canticles, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. We talked about the fact that the Inferno actually has an extra canto. So how many cantos total does it have? Not 33, but 33 plus one, which equals 34, not 100. Very good. But there are 100 cantos total within the Divine Comedy. We talked a little bit about the rhyme scheme. What is the Italian name for ABA, BCB, CDC? Who remembers? It has something to do with three, I think. Yes? Very good pronunciation, too. The Piazzarima. Very good. Remember, a Z in Italian makes a TS sound. That's why you go to the Piazza. That's why you eat pizza, not pizza, which would be sort of a lame way of saying that. In any case, in any case, today we're actually getting into the text itself, and we'll see several more threes. Ah, one more three I should have mentioned. The stanzas. A, who can tell me what a stanza is and how it differs from what a paragraph is? Yes? Is it a stanza, three lines of text? Not necessarily. In this case, yes, but not necessarily. Yes? It's the same amount of lines per text. Ah, interesting. Okay, so a stanza is a paragraph in poetry. And so a paragraph is a stanza in prose. The paragraphs, which are called stanzas for poetry, are a very specific length for Dante. There are three lines, and so they are, these specific stanzas are called even more specifically what's. What is a three-line stanza in Dante called? Yes? A tercet. Very good. A tercet. All right, well, more triples. We're going to run into three beasts, leopard, lion, and she-wolf. We're going to meet Virgil as a guide today in this first canto. We're going to hear about these three blessed women, one super, super blessed for Dante, Virgin Mary mother of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, assumed into heaven in the 20th century by the Catholic faith. St. Lucy, she's probably a metaphor. The word lux means light in Latin. So to be lucid means to be clear or to let light through you. If you elucidate, you clarify things. And so probably she's sort of an allegorical representation of some understanding coming down to Dante. And then we have Beatrice. She's sort of cut off here, but she's such a big figure that I expect you to know her name. And, and even... In her name, you can see which number. Beatrice. Three. Try. Exactly so. All right, let's go. Canto one starts with what we will identify as a physical situation as well as an allegorical situation. So there are, uh, according to a letter, a very famous letter to Conbran della Scala by Dante during the construction of his parody. So there are four ways to interpret his poem. And we'll talk about those four ways a little bit more when we get to Paradiso. In any case, two of those ways are the literal way, just follow the story. He runs into some actual, uh, some actual beasts and actually runs into the dead Virgil and actually goes down to hell. Okay, well, that's one way of looking at it. There's also very much an allegorical way of looking at this poem, as if it is a symbol. And there are problems with purely looking at this story as an allegory. And so I suggest more of a hybrid way of looking at it. I would say that certain symbols within this uh, story are clearly symbols and are clearly meant to be interpreted as symbols so that you can find some deeper underlying meaning. Now, you need to know the facts of the text. You need to know the actual journey. And in the Inferno, you actually do get a journey. In the Purgatorio, 
there's sort of a journey going on, and you are making your way up, but it becomes far more allegorical. When we get to the Paradiso, there's far less narrative and far more philosophy. It's like the journey with the feet has stopped, and the journey of the mind has truly begun, which is why Dante says that's the hardest canticle, and the one that you should probably not even bother with, because it will be too hard for you. I know, an incredible thing for him to say. And that said, we start very famously with Dante's Inferno. In the middle of a dark forest, midway through our life. Very annoying pronoun. If you look into the Italian, they have a very similar possessive pronoun to the Spanish. Nostra. Like the Spanish possessive pronoun, Nostra. Or Nostros. I'm right on that, right? Yes, our. And in fact, in French, it's Notre. Notre Dame, Our Lady. Uh, and so, why our life? Well, the idea is this. Dante is literally 35 years old, which he believes, based on a piece of scripture from the Old Testament, is literally halfway through a human life. In Old Testament scripture, I can't remember which book, I always forget, it says that a human life is 70 years long. And if you read some of the earlier stories in Genesis, you'll see people getting up to like 900 years, uh, but that's not generally the case with a human. And so he is literally himself halfway through his life, but why does he say our life? Well, the idea seems to be that he is, in some way, a representation of everybody going through this story. And that is a very important thing to keep in mind, because then every lesson he learns, who should also learn, because it applies to them as well, because they are also a person. The reader. The reader? Does that mean all of us? Yes. So Dante is telling us a story not about himself, but about all of us. So if we read this story, we won't just learn about him. You'll learn about yourselves. That's the whole point of reading. That's the whole point of reading. If it weren't valuable to you, why would we do it? It's a very weird, awkward thing. It takes a lot of focus, a lot of energy. A lot of people don't like to do it. Well, then it should have some high value if we do it. In any case, he tries to climb a hill. I want you to look at this allegorically, metaphorically. If you're climbing a hill, you're on the way what? Up or down? Up. It's like a normal life. You're on the way up. You're on the up and up. We have ways of talking about this. It's a famous poet who said that families are always rising and falling in America. That's a paraphrase of it, and actually I learned the quote from The Departed, so I didn't actually read the original source. But in any case, we talk about rise and fall still in our language. And so Dante's doing pretty well. And so then he runs into these three animals, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. Now, literally, it seems like he's on a mountain, and he runs into some beasts in a dark forest where he's lost. Okay, okay, what can we do with this? What can we do with this? Well, let me make sure I don't have this written everywhere. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me put it here like this. Those three, and make sure you write down what's in bold here. Leopard, lion, she-wolf, incontinence, British, and its mouths. Scholars believe that the three animals that Dante runs into on the way up are the corruptions of the soul that keep people from making it to heaven. I want you to think about that. The leopard. The leopard represents... The most common type of sin. The upper part of hell is dedicated to these sorts of sins. The first five types. Uh, circle one, just being unbaptized or a noble pagan. Circle two, being promiscuous or lustful. Circle three, being gluttonous. Circle four, being greedy or avaricious. And circle five, being angry or sullen. Those are represented by the leopard. Well, what does it mean that Dante gets by the leopard? It seems to mean that he is not incontinent, that he has harnessed his appetite in some way, that he has gotten past that which um, trips up 
many, many, many people. Okay. Well, then he comes to the lion. The lion is interpreted often as a corruption of the spirited part of somebody's soul, according to Plato's tripartite soul, which I will give you a schematic to in a moment. Um, if you are not uh, spirited enough, you're cowardly. If you're too spirited, you become violent. In Dante's terminology, you become brutish. In fact, the seventh circle, and that's what these numbers refer to, incontinence is the first five circles, brutishness is the seventh, but yes, I do know that I skipped six. Six stands outside of categorization. It's heresy. We'll talk about that when we get there. In fact, it does. it is itself on the borderline between upper and lower hell. It, it, it's like the neutral angels, hard to define, hard to put in one place. Dante's actually such a magnificent genius that he literally makes it hard to define um, even in your mental image of where heresy is. Is it in upper hell? Is it in lower hell? It's technically slightly in lower hell. In any case, Dante makes it past the lion. This must mean that he was not himself a brutish or violent individual. And yet, he is stopped by the she-wolf. She is too ferocious. Now, scholars often interpret the she-wolf to mean the worst possible sort of sin, malice. Circles 8 and 9. 8 is fraud. There are 10 subcircles. They're called bulges. Circle 9. There are 4 subcircles. And they each have uh, particular names. Antonora, Caina, Ptolemaea, and the deepest, darkest one, which actually is leaving my mind at this moment. Antonora, Caina, Ptolemaea, and, oh, I'm forgetting what the deepest, darkest one, ah, uh, yes, it makes sense, Judeca, Judeca, named for Judas Iscariot, the person who, for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed Jesus. In any case, what does it mean that Dante doesn't make it past this third animal, this she-wolf? Well, literally speaking, it means he can't keep going up. He can't maintain the same path he was on. He's going to have to go a different direction. Well, let's think allegorically, symbolically. What might it mean that a wolf that represents malice, which is the ultimate sort of evil, keeps Dante from moving forward in his life? And I'll make the question more refined. If that means that malice or evil is keeping Dante from moving forward or up in life, where is that evil located? Is it located outside of him? In the realm of Florentine politics and Catholic religiosity? Or is that evil within him, keeping him from moving up? If it is the case that the evil is within him, he will have to go to the core of his very being to find it. He will have to go to the very bottom of his soul, to the very bottom of the inferno, through all the other sins, through all the evil within himself, to find its source. And I will suggest to you that I think that is precisely what Dante is suggesting here. That the idea here is that he is showing a human how to find the evil and the source of their being which keeps them from getting what they want in this world. And he will show you just how hard it is to recognize that fact and then to expiate that which is within you that keeps you from what you want. Essentially, I, I'm saying he is going to try and teach you how to break bad habits that keep you from the things that you want. And perhaps, depending on how bad the habit is, well, the harder the habit is, or excuse me, 
the worse the habit is, the harder it is to break. And that might sound very prosaic, that might sound very bland, but I'll tell you this. Almost all of your life is spent practicing habits or breaking habits. You might want to think about that. Practicing habits or breaking habits. And so perhaps you want the best possible habits. In any case, let's talk a little more. So, Dante can't get past this she-wolf. What's he going to do? He's lost in some woods. Sort of a deus ex machina happens. Remember that a deus ex machina is when a, it's a Greek tragic convention. When a god on a machine shows up and fixes the situation. It means when there's a situation that a person himself or herself cannot get through, possibly there will be divine help. Well, that happens here. Because who shows up to Dante? Virgil. Is Virgil alive? No, he's very much dead. And so he must have come from some afterlife. And if he came from some afterlife place, probably he was sent, <clears throat> excuse me, sent by a what? Yes? An angel. an angel or a god. An angel, if this happens to be a Christian afterlife, which it, we know it is, but we'll have to see just how much so. In any case, Virgil appears to guide Dante. And he has some bad news. He says... Dante, you've been on the up and up, you've been on this path going up, but you've lost your way, you've confronted malice, you've failed to defeat it, now you have to go down. You have to go the opposite direction in order to get what you want. You thought that the path towards your goal was a line, it's actually a circle. Which is interesting, because if you think about the start of a circle, does it look like you are even going the right direction when you start it, if your goal is to get to where you started? In the first place, you actually look looks like you're going in the what direction from where your goal is? The opposite. That's right. That's right. And that will be one of the great paradoxes of this story. The way down is the way up. And I'll even give you a hint. We will think that we are going downwards the entire time. And then it will turn out that when we get to the bottom of the inferno, it will flip upside down. And it will turn out... And though we thought we were going down the whole time, we were actually doing what? Going up. Right. Right. Because the steps on a staircase don't necessarily look like a staircase themselves. And so, in any case, Dante asks Virgil, this great guy, he does gush a bit. He says, are you really Virgil? And we'll go over that quote today, because he's very, very happy to see him. We'll see a similar sort of uh, greeting when Statius in Candace 21-22 meets Virgil himself. Uh, he'll be pretty excited. People are pretty excited to see Virgil. He's a pretty big time poet. In any case, Dante says, how do I get past this beast? How do I get past this, this she-wolf? And Virgil says, well, there is no getting past it until this creature called a greyhound shows up to do away with it. Now, I'll suggest this. If we're going allegorical, probably the greyhound represents something like the logos, the mind, or something like Jesus. That, those can be our temporary hypotheses. That what removes evil from a Dante medieval Catholic heart is something like knowledge of Jesus. We don't necessarily know that. And actually this image isn't returned to in the Inferno. So we don't get much information on it. But the idea is that malice can be destroyed. And that in some, at some time in the future it will be destroyed. And it will be destroyed by this creature called a Greyhound. Something interesting about Greyhounds is they are racing dogs. They are very fast which I think potentially supports the idea that a greyhound has some relationship to a mind, because a human mind is also very what? Fast. It moves as fast as thought. 
which is as fast as the Greek Olympian gods moved uh, in the Iliad. That's how fast Hera is actually described as moving between heaven and earth, Olympus and earth. Good. All right. Not only does Dante have to turn around, he must follow Virgil through hell and through the middle of the earth. This is going to be a very hard or easy journey. Hard. A very scary or pleasant journey. Scary. It's terrifying. Remember how Odysseus reacted when he had to go to the edge of the underworld. He broke down in tears. Well, imagine you don't have to go to the edge of the underworld. You have to go to the underworld. And in the underworld are the worst possible punishments and the worst possible people that have ever existed. Perhaps the worst punishment is the people you have to be around. In fact, Dante will give some evidence for that sort of idea, which is, I think, very funny. Uh, he, he's definitely mentioning the people he has to spend his time around when he is exiled at first, the other exiled white Guelphs alongside him. In any case, something I want you to know about this hell. It will be described darkly and gloomily. There will be terrible smells and terrible sounds all throughout. I just want you to think about a porta potty. Now I want you to think about going to like some sort of festival where there are like 10 or 15 porta potties all near each other. You're, you're a CrossFit athlete, like CrossFit competition. They, they smell very uh, mellifluous uh, or are they malodorous? How do they smell? Why am I using this as an example? They smell terrible or great? Terrible, disgusting, of course. Yeah, it's all human feces. Well, this is essentially the porta potty of the soul. Uh, or the collection of porta potties of the soul. And it actually does literally smell very bad down in Dante's Inferno. In fact, when he gets to Circle Six, the first thing that will hit him will be a smell so bad that he has to cover his mouth and try and take refuge underneath uh, a scaffolding. He's like, oh my, oh my, you know, Zeus, oh my Jove, it smells putrid down here. So this place is physically disgusting, as well as being sort of morally disgusting as well. Good, 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 good. This symbol, I don't need you to write this down, but I do need you to know this. If I ask you about allegory or symbol, know that the dark wood is a symbol for Dante going through essentially a midlife crisis, but not just Dante, any human going through a crisis where they've been living in one way and been successful, and now they have to change things, possibly totally change things in order to move to the next level. And you might say, Mr. Schmidt, does that sort of thing happen to people? And I would say, just think back to the Iliad. Think of Hecuba. She was the queen of Troy. She had 50 sons and 100 daughters. She probably thought everything was going to be good forever. And yet, by the end of her life, she was led away as a slave with no sons left and very few daughters. Did her life change completely during the course of it? Yes. Does this sort of thing happen to people? Yes. Who has to pick up the pieces and change everything then? We do. But are you the sort of creature that can do that? Yes. And that's why we have stories about this. All right. Good. I just need you very quickly to write down these three parts of the soul. Now, it is the case that Dante knew Aristotle better than Plato because the works of Greek literature were largely kept in the Byzantine Empire at this time. The Byzantine Empire is the Eastern Roman Empire where they spoke Greek and were actually called Greeks by outsiders, but they called themselves Romans. Now, after the fall of Byzantium, 1453, by the invasion of the Turks, uh, that 
that literature was then spread back into the Latin West. The Latin West is essentially uh, Western Europe at this time. Now, it is, as I was saying, it is the case that Dante did not have a chance to read Plato. He would have read more of Aristotle and does actually have a high opinion of Aristotle. In fact, the Middle Ages, since they had more access to Aristotle, had a much higher opinion of Aristotle than they did of Plato. And therefore, the medieval Catholic tradition integrated more of Aristotle's <coughs> excuse me, philosophical insights into their tradition rather than Plato's. Um, even though originally, when Christianity first came around in the first few centuries, it was Plato that, and the Neoplatonists who had a huge influence on its interpretation, uh, particularly on Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine, who's one of the first major Platonic and Christian thinkers. All that said, <clears throat> it is somehow the case that Dante bases his tri tripartite soul on Plato rather than Aristotle. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been lecturing a lot today. Even though Aristotle splits his soul into three as well, vegetative soul, locomotive soul, rational soul, these are the three divisions you need to know. Plato has an appetitive soul. It's described in the Phaedrus as a dark, poorly behaved horse. Because do your desires care where you want to go, or do they just take you wherever they want to go? Think about when you're hungry. Does it care whether it is appropriate for you to be hungry at that time? No. Your desires, think about if you're greedy. Any, any of your appetites or desires, they just pop up. They're probably very uncomfortable. And they demand your attention. They're not very rational. Second part of the soul is the spirited part of the soul. I talked about this earlier. It's the part that if you don't have enough, you're cowardly. If you have too much, you are violent. And, then, and that's described as the noble, beautiful horse that is lashed right next to the appetites in the Phaedrus. And then there is the third part, the rational. That is the charioteer who is lashing both the horses. And he's supposed to use the spirited part to tame the desirous part. And actually he has to pull the rain so hard on the desirous part of the soul that its lips bleed from the bit. And as you all know, in my past I was a fitness trainer. I can say that that's not a bad idea of how a human works. It really does take a lot of willpower to harness your desires, as I'm sure you all know. And so I think that's a pretty good way of looking at what a human is. You should be using your mind to direct your discipline to keep your appetites from taking you off course. Sounds like good advice to me. Alright, good. I want us to read very quickly together. Please pay, pay very close attention to this. You will see parts of this quote again tomorrow and on Friday. This is from Canto 1, when Dante meets Virgil. I want you to see just how excited he is to see him. I want you to think about two reasons why he might be excited to see Virgil in that point. A general reason and a specific reason to where he is in that moment. I was a poet, and I sang of the just son of Anchises. He's already told us who he was. Who, sung of, who is the son of Anchises? Yes? Aeneas. Aeneas. Well, who sang about him? And you might say, I don't remember. And I say, you don't remember? Lion's hand of the Aeneid? Virgil. It is Virgil. Let's look. Let me look at book one really quickly. My goodness, in this old book. Oh, excuse me. Book 12, or excuse me, line 12 in English. Might be line 13. Line 13 is the one where he says tell. But line one, can you read line one out loud for us? That one. I sing of arms and of a man. I sing of arms and of a man. 
Who wrote this work? Virgil. Who is the singer of the Son of Anchises? Virgil. He's already told us who he was, but he'll tell us some more, just in case. And I sang of the just Son of Anchises, the man who came from Troy after the proud Ilion had been burnt down. Funny that he says the just Son of Anchises. You'll see that a character from Virgil's Aeneid, book 2, named Ripius, is actually in heaven, which is sort of funny, because even though Virgil, the writer of the story, is in hell, one of his characters makes it to heaven, which might make you think that's supremely unfair. And yet, we see things that we think are supremely unfair here. But you, why do you come back to such disturbance? Why do you not climb the delightful mountain, which is the beginning and reason of all joy? He says, why aren't you still moving upward? Some scholars believe that the mountain that Dante first finds himself on is the mountain of purgatory. Though geographically, I have some questions about how that would work. Are you indeed that Virgil? Are you the spring which spreads abroad that white water of speech? says, are you in that ocean of wisdom? High, 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 high praise. When I had spoken, I bowed my head for shame. Why does he bow his head for shame? Because he's speaking to a poet. What are poets good with? Words. What did he just use in front of one of the best poets? Words. What does he think that that poet probably thinks about his words? Lacking or supremely eloquent? Wrong. Lacking. And yes, that's why you would bow your head with shame. In any case, you are the honor and the light of other poets. My goodness. My long study and great love, my long study and great love, give me strength. It's almost like the better you know something, the more you love it. Which is funny, because you say, that's not true, Mr. Schmidt. Then you see all the flaws, and I say, yeah, but what about your favorite shirt? Is it old or is it new? Then I say this, what about with your teachers? How you start with them, you're kind of like, there's a weird, older human in front of me. But then by the end of the year, they're pretty good, or even just okay, you sort of feel how for them, generally. You kind of like them, because you've gotten to what them? Gotten to know them. And so, an equivalency you'll see in Dante is to know something is to love it. So if you don't love something, you don't know it. Which I think is pretty funny. In any case, my long study and great love give me strength now as they made me pour over your book. You are my master and indeed my author. That's the highest praise you can give to somebody. He's saying that he is created as a poet by Virgil and his study of him. One cannot give higher praise than this. It is from you alone that I have taken the exact style for which I have been honored. All the honor that is due to me. This is very much an encomium is due to you. This is the sort of thing that we say at celebrations and at, uh, at like end of the year um, parties, right? We say all my flaws are my own, but all my gifts and triumphs I owe to you. We say this sort of thing. Very nice. Look at the animal which made me turn back. That is the she-wolf. Help me to handle her. You are famous for wisdom. For she makes my veins and pulse shudder. Okay, so he thinks if he's wise enough, he can get past evil in the world and in himself. Wrong. You will have to go another way than this, he answered. When he saw that I was weeping, if you want to get away from this wild place, he says, Greco-Roman philosophy and wisdom, all that you've studied is not enough. I'll put it as a hypothesis. Perhaps it will be the case that what gets somebody out of the darkest possible time is not skill. Or wisdom. But for Dante, he might say that it's something like faith, represented by Beatrice, an angel in his heart and mind, heaven. In any case, for that beast which has made you so call out does not allow others to pass her way, but holds them up and in the end destroys them. Evil will destroy you, whether it is inside or outside, if one lets it. 
and is by nature so wayward and perverted that she never satisfies her willful desires, but after a meal is hungrier than before. That means you do evil, you want to do more evil, you're never satisfied. Which seems to be the reason that evil continues to exist. Many are the animals she makes herself wife to, and there will be more of them until the greyhound comes, who will make her die a painful death. So this greyhound in some way is some sort of alexapharmic, some sort of, uh, some sort of medicine that will cure the world or a person of evil. So it would be very important for us to know what that greyhound actually is. Okay, cool. Canto 2. Dante's refusal of the call, and Beatrice calls for backup. Ah, yes, here. This is very important. One of the major epic conventions in this poem that Dante does follow is the invocation to the muse in Canto 2. In fact, he explicitly says, O muses, O profound inclination in our translation, help me, O memory, which recorded what I saw. Inferno 2, lines 7 to 9. Which I would find very interesting. Because if this is a Christian poem, who would you imagine he would invoke? A Greco-Roman goddess called a muse, from which we get the word music? Or an angel in heaven? You would, of course, expect a reference to a Christian angel or god or goddess or saint. And yet you get a classical reference. Well, it might be the case that in this first poem, Dante is going to show the wisdom of the past which is no longer valid with the coming of Catholic Christianity. It might be the case that he is going to show the fallen nature of wisdom. But it might also be the case that he syncretically is trying to combine Christian and Greco-Roman elements together to come up with a synthesis that takes the best of both worlds. Perhaps that's something art always does. In any case, there are some connections here. So you said, Sister Schmidt, you said epic convention. That means it's happened before. That means we ask you to prove it. And I say, okay, no problem. Homer's Iliad, invocation of the muse. Sing goddess, the anger of Peleus' his son, Achilles. The goddess is a muse. She is, the, she is, in fact, the muse. Do any of you know which muse is the muse of epic poetry in Homer's muse? Her name is Calliope. Homer's Odyssey. Tell me, muse. Of the man of many ways, who was driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Odyssey 1, 1 to 2. Okay, there's an invocation. Virgil's Aeneid. I sing of arms and of a man. Tell me the reason, muse. So, we've seen three epics there. All from the Greco-Roman tradition. Two Greek, one Roman. All invoking the muse. Dante has invoked the muse. Therefore, he is trying to join which tradition? The epic tradition. He has set out at the very beginning that he is attempting the ultimate test of a poet's ability. So, we will be his critics. We will be his judges. Make sure that you note all of these invocations. You will see them again. Okay. Virgil and hell. This is very sad. But this is something that we have to confront. In Canto 3, we will go down into hell. We will go out, down into the widening, smiling chasm of hell, sometimes called the Jaws of Orcus. In fact, literally called the Jaws of Orcus by Virgil. Virgil, though he will lead Dante, is himself a hellion. He lives in hell. He is consigned to hell. He is damned to hell for all eternity. And he does not get to lead. 
By the end of this poem, Dante will go back to Earth, and Virgil will go back to Limbo. Limbo is, as we talked about, and this is why the game Limbo is called Limbo, and why you have a limbic system, and it's related to the word limit, means a limit case, something right on the border of something. So Limbo is the border of hell. It's the first circle. It's for those people that sort of don't fit in hell, but they also don't fit in heaven, because they weren't Christian. They were the noble pagans and unbaptized children. Noble pagans meaning people who were great philosophers, poets, mathematicians, and even conquerors in the case of Caesar. Now, why has Virgil left hell to come help Dante? Apparently, Beatrice, who Dante fell in love with at the age of nine when she was eight, and who died when she was 25, has become an angel in heaven. As an angel in heaven, she can apparently see earth. She can also apparently affect events on earth to some extent. Because supposedly, she learned from St. Lucy, who came to see her, so you have this sort of drama in heaven, who said, Dante, that man who loved you so much when you were alive, is in big trouble. He's about to make a big mistake. People think that potentially he was about to commit suicide. St. Lucy shows up to Beatrice, and apparently she was sent by the Virgin Mary, the Queen of Heaven, so-called, to Beatrice, so that Beatrice can do something. You, you will recall the Iliad. It sounds a lot like Hera going to talk to Athena, who then goes to talk to Odysseus, who then makes something happen that needs to happen down on the Trojan War. It's a very similar order of operations. So we have St. Lucy, who's sent by Mary to go alert Beatrice, that Dante's in a bad state, Beatrice then has Virgil, she goes down to visit Virgil, and sends him up to guide Dante. Does everybody understand the order of operations? Mary to Lucy to Beatrice to Virgil to Dante. There's sort of a genealogy given there, too. Very interestingly enough. In any case, those are the ladies you need to know. And just as like a bonus question, Beatrice is at the moment sitting with Rachel. When, uh, and I think that might very well be the sister of Leah, who, uh, alongside her brother Leah, did marry Jacob. I'll tell you that story later on. It's, it, it will be very much relevant in the purgatorio. All right. These three women. I don't think I need you actually to write the beginning. Beatrice, St. Lucia, and Mary are all looking out for Dante. Dante... I'll finish this. I'll finish these quotes tomorrow. We only have like one slide, and then I have a lot of art to show you tomorrow from three different artists showing you different artistic traditions and perceptions of Dante throughout time.